Uh, for us to see um, someone like you or Jay Barney or Kathy Eisenhardt, we needed to go to go to the uh, to the Academy of Management conference and see right. the session. And right, and you get maybe five minutes of the person's time, right? Yes, yeah, if you are lucky. If yeah. No, but with yeah. the with the pandemic, with the Zoom, you know, uh, it, it became yeah, somewhat possible. And the the, the global presence on, on on the event today, you know, just indicates, you know, that we we are becoming more global with this global challenge. You know? So uh, we have, I mean, we have delegates from all around the globe. You know, America, Europe, Asia. I thought that Jay did a particularly good job, didn't he? I thought he was really helpful. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. That 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 was interesting. You know, that was that was intense Q and A, and I think that that was uh, that was really uh, uh, that was really insightful. And yeah, and I love that we kept that as a surprise, and oh, yeah. uh, everybody was like, "Oh, wow, Jay Barney's here!" Yeah. Uh, so that was nice. Yeah, that was yeah that was that was a great surprise. You know, that that was a great surprise to to, to see Jay uh, when when you didn't expect actually. Right, and he hung out for like I think almost half an hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you said that uh, he wouldn't. Uh, yeah, uh, if he comes for ten minutes, you know, he'll stay. <laughs> right. No, exactly. That's what I said. I said let's invite him for five or ten minutes. He'll stay. <laughs> yeah. I know once Jay starts talking, there's no stop. <laughs>
Uh, it was called A Practical Guide for Making Theory Contributions in Strategic Management. And we wrote this uh, essay specifically to try to help uh, doctoral students and junior researchers who um, maybe um, didn't quite know uh, how to make a contribution to research, uh, to, to theory, how to make a contribution to theory. Um, a lot has been written uh, on theory um, that's of a very kind of philosophical nature, uh, theoretical, general, abstract nature. Uh, and we felt that what was missing was more of a, um, a practical, concrete, specific how-to kind, of, uh, kind of essay. So this is not a, a what is or a why is kind of uh, essay. It's a very much a how-to kind of essay. Um, and uh, the other recommended reading that I suggested for this, um, for this workshop was uh, Jay Barney's excellent uh, editor's comment in uh, Academy of Management Review on positioning a theory paper for publication, which, you know, once you have a, um, uh, a theoretical contribution, really helps you to frame it and to explain it to your audience. So those are kind of the, the two recommended readings. Um, Okay, so I do want to pause for a moment to say thanks. Obviously, uh, because this was based on a uh, an SMJ special issue, I definitely want to thank uh, the three SMJ co-editors at the time who gave us the opportunity to even do this special issue. That's uh, Sendal Atharaj, uh, Alfonso Gambardella, and Connie Halpat. So thanks very much to them. I also want to express some gratitude to um, my two co-authors on the essay, Rich Burton and Jay Barney. Uh, we also were joined in that special issue by two other special issue editors, Don Hambrick and Ed Zajac, and uh, providing some, uh, some overall supervision to the effort was Rich Bettis, who served as our advising editor. I also want to thank <clears throat> um, Cranfield School of Management for uh, hosting and sponsoring today's event. Uh, and for Sergey to also say, say thanks to Sergey and Ibrat for, uh, for really doing the nuts and bolts organizing of today's session. Now, so I just wanted to kind of start with a, um, an observation about, about theory. Now, theory is just kind of a fancy word for a uh, kind of a speculative answer to a question that begins with why or a question that begins with how, right? So have a question that begins with why or how, really, um, really uh, an answer to that, any kind of speculative answer to that is a, is a theory of some kind. Um, and I wanna emphasize that, that you know, theory is really a very important primary performance, primary, primary importance uh, in academia. And really it's what separates us from journalists. You know, from the perspective of journalists or practitioners, Theory is not all that interesting. It's really phenomena that are the primary focus to journalists and practitioners. And to them, theories are really only useful for limited purposes, for the purpose of interpreting the meaning of phenomena or for predicting phenomena or for controlling phenomena. Uh, and so for their, from their perspective, really the focus is more on the trees, not the forest. Um, However, to academics, we're more, uh, tend to be more big picture oriented. We're more interested in the generalities rather than the specifics. So for us, 
theory tends to be more the primary focus. And from, from an academic perspective, uh, really there's limited, just as from the journalist's perspective or the practitioner's perspective, there's limited usefulness for theory. From our perspective, there's kind of limited usefulness for phenomena. Uh, phenomena is really only useful for the purpose of, for the scientific purpose of testing between competing theories or defining the boundary conditions on the theory, right? Um, maybe for some other purposes, but, but primarily, you know, in the scientific enterprise, uh, if, if what we're interested in is uh, getting, uh, you know, big answers to big questions, uh, if we're interested in the general generalities rather than the specifics, uh, then theory is our primary focus and phenomena is, 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 um, is secondary, is really useful for, for improving our understanding of theory. So for us, really, typically, the focus is on the forest, not the trees. Now, of course, there are exceptions to these, to this, um, uh, you know, to, to what I'm saying on this slide. There are certainly, I'm sure, practitioners or journalists who are, who have a deep interest in theory. And I'm, I'm definitely sure that there are academics who, who put phenomena first and who are really much more interested in, in phenomena than theory. So this is really, this is not a hard and fast rule, of course. Um, but uh, but this is kind of a generalization that on average, uh, journalists and practitioners are more interested in phenomena than theory. And on average, academics are kind of more interested in theory than phenomena. Okay. Okay. So um, Sergey was making the point uh, in his introduction that um, this is an important topic for doctoral students to learn, to learn how to make contributions to theory. The expectation generally is that a, a dissertation will have a contribution to theory. And so there's a question here of, you know, why don't uh, doctoral students do more theory work? Um, and I have a couple of speculations about this and perhaps, so this is kind of my theory about why there's less, not as much theory as there should be. Uh, so I'll, I'll theorize about that being a theorist. Um, so I have a couple of theories here. One, one possible theory is, um, oops, I went backwards. Sorry about that. Uh, is role modeling, right? That in order to learn how to do theory, it's useful to have an advisor who does theory, right? To, to serve as a role model. And, you know, there are certainly many, uh, um, you know, dissertation advisors whose, uh, whose careers are built on empirical contributions, whose interest is primarily in making empirical contributions, and they, you know, maybe don't do so much theory. Uh, and so uh, perhaps uh, doctoral students don't get uh, the kind of um, role modeling that they would need in order to really uh, shine on the theory side. Okay, what did I do again? Okay, I'll keep my windows correct. Okay, so the other, another possible um, answer is that, uh, you know, uh, the, the job of the doctoral student really is to get a, uh, to, to get a faculty position, right, to survive the job market and get a faculty position, particularly difficult this year with the, um, the restrictions that the pandemic has put on us uh, in terms of uh, hiring freezes uh, all across uh, academia. Um, and, uh, you know, the big rite of passage in the job market, of course, is the job talk. And there's generally an expectation that job, rookie job talks are expected to be empirical in nature. Right, people want to um, want to see your your capabilities on the empirical side. 
Uh, and so, you know, uh, doctoral students may think, well, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to devote much uh, effort to theory because uh, that's not really what's going to get me that, that first job. Um, then there's also perhaps some ambiguity, right? This question of what is theory uh, is debated kind of endlessly. What constitutes a, a, a good theoretical contribution or even a, a theoretical contribution at all? Um, there's been a lot written on this, you know, we, we cite a lot of these papers in, you know, in our essay, uh, simply to distinguish what we're doing from what they're doing. But, you know, there's, there's, there's papers on what theory is, what theory is not, you know, what, uh, what theory isn't theorizing is, and et cetera, et cetera. You've seen these papers, I'm sure. Um, and they all have a, a, you know, a useful role. It is helpful to have those philosophical debates and discussions, but it doesn't necessarily help you at the end of the day to actually make a theoretical contribution uh, you know, uh, to go through those debates. Um, and then, uh, so there's maybe ambiguity about what constitutes, what is theory. Okay, then finally, well not finally, one, another one is you know, training. Uh, we get a lot of uh, methodology courses in doctoral training, but they are typically focused on empirical methodologies and particularly focused on statistical methodologies. Um, so, uh, you know, really, it's, it's not just that, uh, that we're missing methods courses for theory. We're also missing, for the most part, methods courses for data collection and, uh, and uh, research design and that sort of thing, right? Um, so, uh, you know, if all our methods courses do is teach us, you know, how to uh, do ever more sophisticated econometric methods, I guess that's useful, but it's not, it's not a complete education in methods, right? A complete education in methods would have to include things like, um, you know, study design, would have to include things like uh, measurement and, um, uh, and data collection, and honestly, theory development, right? So, so the fact that there is typically no methods course for theory also makes it difficult for doctoral students to make a contribution there. Um, and then finally, um, we, we think that, you know, and we said this in the essay, we think that perhaps doctoral students may be confounded if they are um, uh, assuming that any contribution to theory has to be some kind of big paradigm shifting grand theory, right? Uh, and that anything short of that is not a contribution to theory. And this is just, um, this is just grandiosity. This is grandiose thinking. Um, so uh, making a theoretical contribution is not just about making some big new paradigm shift. Um, there are lots of ways to contribute to theory in less grandiose ways. So, um, so you know, I can understand that if, you're, if your um, impression is that theory is all about, you know, some big new paradigm shifting grand theory, then yeah, that would seem like a pretty daunting um, task to take on and you might not want to do that, right? Um, but, but that's not all it's all about. So, we cannot, in this essay, obviously solve all of these problems. And by, by the way, perhaps there may be more diagnoses out there about what, what, what's the cause of PhD students not doing more theory. Um, but these are my, my kind of my five working hypotheses. And 
I, we can't, you know, in this essay, we can't fix all of these. We certainly can't, you know, uh, fix the role modeling and incentives piece. Uh, it's not our business to fix the ambiguity piece. Um, but we can maybe contribute a little bit to these last two bullet points by perhaps alleviating some of the confusion about what, what making a theory, a contribution to theory is, and also perhaps providing uh, a little bit of a substitute for the, uh, for the lack of a methods course in theory. Um, so, so really basically what I wanna say here is the essay, you know, in lieu of having a, a methods course in theory, the essay, what the essay provides is kind of a cookbook, if you would, uh, which uh, has a kind of a set of recipes of, um, of ways to make contributions to theory, right? Okay. Okay. So our advice, I think, in the essay is basically to keep it simple. Rather than taking on the grand daunting task of, of developing a whole new paradigm shift, focus on making small bite-sized contributions that can extend or revise an existing theory in interesting and useful ways. So how do you do that? Well, we provide in the essay a taxonomy of approaches, which are summarized in this, uh, this uh, figure one, which obviously is too small for you to read here. So I'll be expanding pieces of it in the subsequent slides. But basically, at the top of the figure, you see inputs. What are the research questions? These are the kind of how and why questions that drive, uh, that drive uh, research. Uh, that, uh, that, that we're trying to, how and why questions that, that theory is trying to provide speculative answers to. You know, and then out the bottom of the figure are the outputs, things like explanations, predictions, prescriptions, etc. The middle, though, I think is where a lot of the action takes place. Um, because, you know, often that's the, the middle is where, uh, where the, the opportunities often tend to be overlooked. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting and important to think about bringing up new research questions at the top of the figure as an input, right? It's also interesting to think about, you know, what kinds of outputs you can derive from theories at the bottom. But I believe that a lot of the contribution to theory takes place right there in the middle, in the, in the, in the, in the theorizing process. Uh, and so what we're going to do there is look at specific levers, what we call levers of the theorizing process. Um, and, uh, uh, and basically uh, those levers answer kind of the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of theory, right? So we're gonna go through those in, in a little bit uh, of, of detail, okay. So, uh, let me start with uh, the input, the research question. Uh-oh, somebody is um, uh, drawing on my slide. Is that possible? Uh, looks like uh, somebody has made a little sketch on my slide there. Um, okay. So uh, a research question is the, the main input into the theorizing process. Uh, without a research question, there's really nothing to theorize about. Um, every field of study, has its own kind of uniquely characteristic research questions. And, you know, Rumel, Chendel, and Thies in their 1994 book, Fundamental Questions of, what was it called? Fundamental Issues and Strategy. Um, they do this, the field of great service by, by providing a, a, a list of questions that they identify as fundamental questions and strategy that uh, include things like, how do firms behave? Why are firms different? 
what is the function or value added by the headquarters unit in a diversified firm? Um, and, uh, you know, and so different fields uh, basically pose different sets of questions. Um, so one obvious way to make a contribution to theory would then be to change the research question, right? So uh, basically, <clears throat> or, um, you know, either by asking a completely new question or by modifying an existing question in some way or applying an existing theory to address a different question, right? So let's take each of those in turn. So um, uh, the, the challenge with uh, asking a completely new question is that on, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, it expands the field's boundaries to ask a new question. On the other hand, it may provoke a defensive response from the field, particularly from reviewers and editors of your paper who may say, you know, that's a, that's a clever question, but is it really a fill in the blank? Like, is it really a strategy question? Or is it really a, an OB question? Or is it really an HR question? Whatever, whatever field the journal is, is purporting to represent, um, you know, they may raise questions about whether this new question, this new research question actually fits within the boundaries of the field that they're representing. Um, and so that's why it's a double-edged sword, because, you know, on the one hand, it may really represent a, a big advance. On the other hand, it may, um, uh, you may get some pushback. Uh, you may get some backlash. Um, okay. Um, so a second way of changing the research question is to uh, modify an old research question, right? So one way to do that is to perhaps change or narrow the terms or the context, right? So for example, uh, let's go back to that fundamental question of, of, of strategy that, uh, that Rumel, Chendel, and Thies asked, you know, what is the function or value added by the headquarters unit in a diversified firm? Well, I could change the context of that question. I could say, what is the function of or value added by the headquarters unit in a nonprofit organization? Or what is the function of or value added by the headquarters unit in a um, in a, uh, uh, a government agency, right? So that would be uh, changing the context of the question. Um, I could also uh, maybe take that question and focus in on a particular aspect of value added, right? Because, or a particular aspect of function, right? So, so function or value added, those are, are pretty general terms. Um, and uh, I could maybe narrow the question by, by looking at a particular type of way to add value or a particular type of function. Um, so that's a way to kind of take an existing research question and kind of re refresh it and rejuvenate it by perhaps changing or narrowing the terms or the context within which the question is being asked. Um, Another possibility is to uh, apply old theory to a new research question, right? So, uh, you know, maybe, um, uh, you know, maybe the, the theory of, uh, let's say, uh, real options has been applied to answer the question of how firms behave and why do firms differ in their performance, but maybe it hasn't been uh, applied to the question of what function or added value is provided by the top management in the firms or something like that, right? So, 
So you, you know, you take a, an existing theory and perhaps apply it uh, in a, uh, in a, to, to a question that it hasn't been applied to yet. Okay. Now, what, so what makes a good theory? That's another question, right? So a good, or I should say maybe not a good theory. What makes a good research question, right? Because the research question is just the input into the theory. What makes for a good research question? Well, a good research question really should be broad enough to interest a wide audience and yet be narrow enough to be answerable. Um, vague questions tend to impede progress. So even when a topic is clearly both important and interesting, uh, research on it may flounder until the research question is framed in a way that is specific enough to be answered. Um, I'll give credit here to Dick Rumelt. Uh, I saw him at a, at a, um, a research conference, he gave a presentation where he made this observation. He said, in the early days of the strategy field, the question that was on people's mind basically was this kind of vague question of what strategy should a company pursue? Uh, and that's really just kind of too vague and amorphous a question to make much progress on. The field started to make more progress once the question was framed in really more specific, specific terms. Uh, for example, when Porter, uh, in uh, his 1979 um, Harvard Business Review article, uh, Porter made a valuable contribution by, by changing the conversation to the more focused and manageable research question of what makes an industry attractive, right? So the question of what strategy should a company pursue, very kind of vague, amorphous general. The question of what makes an industry attractive, that's more specific, that's more answerable. Okay. So that kind of takes care of what I have to say about the research question. So now we're gonna move into the, the middle box in the, uh, in the figure one diagram and look at each of the different levers of the theorizing process. So the first one is the mode of theorizing. So the mode of theorizing is the lever that defines how we theorize. Um, so, uh, you know, deductive theory, is one possible mode in, in deductive theory. You start with a set of general assumptions, uh, sometimes about un unobservable constructs like utility maximization. And from these general assumptions, uh, you uh, uh, logically deduce uh, what specific implications uh, can be derived from those general assumptions. On the other hand, inductive theory is a different kind of mode of theorizing, which starts with specific observations of the real world and relies on comparisons between them in order to make inferences about possible generalizations. Uh, these two modes of inductive and deductive represent a trade-off between realism and reproducibility. Inductive theory being grounded in real-world observations enjoys the benefit of realism, but may be weak in reproducibility because simply uh, different researchers could look at the same set of observations and infer different generalizations. Deductive theory is kind of the opposite. By contrast, deductive theory may be less realistic because it is not necessarily grounded in observations at all, but it generates highly reproducible results because any researcher who is armed with the basic tools of deductive logic can confirm <clears throat> whether or not the conclusions are actually implied by the assumptions. Uh, process modeling uh, aims to uh, explain how a particular uh, entity changes over time, whereas variance modeling 
aims to explain why entities differ from each other. So when I said earlier that um, a theory is uh, just kind of a fancy word for a speculative answer to a how question or a why question, uh, I'll just note here that if we're asking a how question, we tend to be thinking in terms of process theory. If we're asking a why question, we, we tend to be thinking in terms of variance-based theories, right? So how questions are more process-based, why questions are more variance-based. Um, let's see, so uh, then you have the, the, the possibility of uh, static versus dynamic theories, right? So static theories tend to examine how a system and its parts behave under a steady state equilibrium where all the forces affecting the system are kind of in balance with each other. Um, whereas dynamic theories examine how a system and its parts move and evolve under the influence of forces that may push the, push the system toward equilibrium or away from equilibrium or between equilibria. Um, then you also have the, the distinction between formal and informal theories. Informal theories rely on the natural language of uh, verbal reasoning and therefore are accessible to a broad audience. Uh, but the trade-off is there um, that, uh, you know, formal theories rely on the rigorous languages of logic, mathematic and mathematics and simulation, um, which, you know, are um, uh, perhaps provide a stronger audit trail for the theory, but may be challenging for audiences without the specialized training needed to understand what they're saying. Uh, within the realm of formal theory, analytical methods like game theory uh, derive exact results, uh, but can only be used for models with relatively few parameters in order to maintain their tractability. Whereas numerical methods like simulation can handle much more complex models with a larger number of parameters. But they tend to, simulations tend to yield only approximate results whose causality may be more difficult to interpret. Okay. Um, so uh, just to, um, so inductive versus deductive, sorry, I should have been, I should have been processing these, these bullet points as I went through, inductive versus deductive, process-based versus variance-based, static versus dynamic, uh, formal versus informal, and analytical versus numerical. Let me just provide a few quick examples of this. Um, uh, Arkady Sokratov and Tim Bolton have a series of papers that, uh, that add a, a new dynamic element to the formerly static theory of the multi-business firm by focusing on the inherently intertemporal concepts of resource re re redeployability. That's a, that's a tongue twister there. Resource redeployability, right? So that would be an example of switching between the static and the dynamic mode, right? Uh, by adding a dynamic element uh, by looking at resource redeployability. In terms of uh, switching from informal to formal, formal theorizing modes, that's becoming increasingly popular uh, as a way to co contribute to theory. Uh, so for example, uh, the issue of uh, value appropriation uh, has been recognized as an important yet largely overlooked factor in informal uh, resource-based theories of the firm. You know, um, uh, um, Castanius and Halfat and Russ Koff uh, made some important contributions to the, to the theory of uh, value appropriation within the firm, uh, but they did so in largely in an informal way. Uh, whereas uh, now this has been, this topic has switched to a more formal mode of theorizing uh, as uh, folks like uh, Adam Brandenberger, Gus Stewart, uh, Glenn McDonald, and Mike Ryle 
have been applying coalitional game theory as a powerful new, new tool for distilling down um, understanding of value appropriation within the firm uh, in more in more precise uh, ways with more precise distinctions. So that takes care of lever one, the mode of theorizing. Now let me move on to lever two, uh, the level of analysis, right? So just as you can change the mode of theory, you can change the research question, you can change the mode of theorizing, you can also potentially change the level of analysis, right? So the level of analysis is the lever of theorizing that defines who we are theorizing about. Um, so uh, although you know the strategic management field is defined. Uh, I'm, I'm a strategy guy. I know not everybody on the call is, is in the strategy field, although perhaps most are. Um, you know, uh, I'll, tend, I'll speak about it from the perspective of strategy. You can, you can translate as you wish to your own field, whether it's uh, organizational behavior, or human resources management, or whatever you're studying. You know, my, my field of strategic management is defined by a concern for understanding the heterogeneity of overall organizational performance. Uh, but that does not mean, for example, that all research, all strategy studies must be done at the organizational level of analysis, even though our overall, just because our overall, you know, goal is to understand organizational performance, that doesn't mean that all of our studies have to be at the organization level of analysis, right? Research at other levels of analysis can still have important implications for organizational performance. So strategy studies have also focused at, at higher levels of analysis, um, right? Supra-organizational levels of analysis, such as the, you know, the alliance, the joint venture, market, industry, field, institution, or even nation. Uh, and have also, um, you know, strategy has also included studies at sub-organizational levels of analysis, such as the division, department, transaction, team, or even individual level. Now, you know, the challenge here is that blindly applying an unaltered theory to a different level of analysis um, may require in, inappropriate assumptions or generate implausible results. So this is not something you can do blindly to, you know, apply a, a, a theory to a new level of analysis where it wasn't originally intended. But with careful adaptation and appropriate adjustments, some elements of theory at one level of analysis may be at least partly relevant at other levels of analysis. And these adaptations represent opportunities to make a contribution to theory. <clears throat> so um, as, a, as a nice example of this, you know, firms compete with each other uh, and so do nations. But these two types of competition differ in important ways. Uh, and so uh, Michael Porter, who uh, made some very important contributions to the theory of competition between firms. Also then, you know, later in his 1990 book, um, uh, applied some of that logic to competition between nations, but he had to make adjustments along the way uh, because the, the theory didn't apply, you know, directly. Uh, so the result was an important contribution to theory to take you know, basically the ideas from his first two books, his 1980 and 1985 books on, um, uh, on uh, competitive strategy and, uh, uh, and competitive advantage and apply them to the competitive advantage of nations in his 1990 book. Um, conversely, you know, you, you do sometimes see in the literature where somebody does make a blind uh, uh, application 
of a theory to a level of analysis where it doesn't completely apply. Uh, and, uh, um, a, and, and when this happens, <clears throat> that kind of opens up another opportunity for a contribution to research, which is to, uh, to, to correct that uh, misapplication, right? So if somebody out there is misapplying a theory from one level of analysis to another level of analysis, uh, critique and correction of this misapplication can be a useful uh, theoretical contribution. Now, occasionally, it may even be possible to introduce an entirely new level of analysis that researchers had previously overlooked, which itself can be a great contribution to theory. So a well-known example of this in the strategy literature was the introduction of the concept of strategic groups by Michael Porter in a 1979 uh, paper. Uh, such innovations, you know, as long as they can explain uh, something that cannot be explained using other levels of analysis, can be major contributions to theory. Okay, so let me move on in the interest of time to uh, the next lever, which is changing the phenomenon. So, uh, whereas the level of analysis defines um, who the theory is applied to, the phenomenon defines where the theory is applied, right? So the phenomenon is the lever that defines where the theory is relevant, that is the context of the theory. Um, any, uh, any given theory may be relevant in multiple contexts with implications for multiple phenomena. But uh, since organizations, which are the phenomenon that we study most often, organizations and markets and industries are all multifaceted complex systems, interconnected systems, right? These are the phenomena that we tend to focus on, organizations, markets, and industries. They're multifaceted complex systems with lots of parts that connect to each other in a variety of different ways. Uh, and because of that, forces that affect one part are likely to affect other parts as well. Uh, so one potentially important um, uh, question is how they affect these other parts. And the challenge of answering that question offers numerous opportunities to make important theoretical contributions. Right, so you have um, <clears throat> a whole set of legacy phenomena, right? So uh, things like planning, formulation, implementation, performance, cognition, decision-making, innovation, technology, politics, renewal, turnaround, uh, governance, uh, joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, et cetera. Um, and <clears throat> um, you can look at theories that have been applied to one of these phenomena and ask whether they also are applicable to other phenomena in this list, right? You can say, uh, you know, maybe a theory that's been applied to uh, joint ventures uh, might be uh, useful for thinking about leadership. Uh, maybe a theory that's been applied to turnarounds may be useful in thinking about networks or alliances, right? So um, there's opportunities here to consider because we are dealing with complex uh, um, interconnected phenomena whose parts affect each other, we can think about how theories that have been applied to one phenomena might also affect other phenomena. Um, and uh, we don't need to uh, even rely on these legacy phenomena uh, because uh, fortunately the world with its uh, constant stream of technological and social innovations is um, uh, you know, delivering kind of a never ending stream 
of new phenomena to which old theories might be applied. Uh, and each of these represents an opportunity to make a theoretical contribution, right? So the emerging phenomena today are things like platforms, business models, blockchain, smart contract, open innovation, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, AI, machine learning, you know, robotics, quantum computing, self-managing organizations, and all that. So, you know, a useful contribution to theory might be to say, well, how do our existing <clears throat> theories apply to these new emerging phenomena? Um, now, uh, an early example of this was uh, how Kathy Harrigan, back in the 1980s, looked at the phenomenon that was just really very, just very much emerging and new at that time, which was joint ventures. Uh, before the 1980s, that just really was not a popular way for companies to do business. Uh, so when it emerged as a phenomenon in the 1980s, Harrigan jumped on that, that bandwagon and said, you know, how, how, does, how does our existing theory uh, apply and help us in, help inform our understanding of this, of this uh, puzzling new phenomenon of joint ventures? Uh, a, a more uh, recent uh, example is how uh, Teppo Polina and, uh, and Todd Zenger applied existing theories of governance to explain the emerging phenomenon of open innovation. Okay, so that's all I've got to say about phenomena. So let me move on to the next uh, lever, which is the causal mechanism. To me, uh, in all, among all the levers of, uh, of the theorizing process, this one is the heart of the matter. Um, because the, the, the causal mechanism is perhaps the most central aspect of any theory. Uh, it's the aspect of the theory <clears throat> that the theory relies upon as the foundation for its own internal logic. The causal mechanism is the lever that defines why the, the theory's proposed relation, relationships or effects occur, right? So uh, the theory proposes a bunch of effects or relationships, uh, but, but doesn't really provide an answer to the question of why those relationships or effects are occurring. That's not really a theory. Right, because the theory is always kind of the answer to a, to a why or a how question. So causal mechanisms tend to have, um, you know, a disciplinary flavor, right? You have, uh, you know, psychological causal mechanisms, things like uh, cognition, affect, learning, motivation, perception, attachment, right? There are also sociological causal mechanisms such as conformity, deviance, conflict, uh, power, status seeking, deference, uh, social structure, et cetera. Um, then there are also economic uh, mechanisms, uh, things like equilibrium, competition, collusion, cooperation, bargaining, contracting, preemption, flexibility, uh, strategizing, rent-seeking, incentivizing, right? So, so uh, causal mechanisms do tend to have this kind of disciplinary flavor. Well, there are several ways that researchers can make contributions to theory by focusing on the causal mechanism. One obvious way would be to introduce or import a causal mechanism that had not previously been recognized as relevant to a particular research question, right? So, uh, I, you know, a great example is this long-standing stream of research on the question of why the dominant positions of strong incumbents get disrupted by weak upstarts, right? And that question was initially studied actually through an economic plan. Uh, where uh, folks like uh, Feudenberg and Tyrol and Gelman and Salop and Gemawat uh, looked at the issue of, um, of cannibalization, 
as perhaps the, uh, the explanation for why uh, um, incumbents with dominant positions tend to lose those dominant positions to upstarts, uh, because perhaps there they would, uh, they would risk cannibalizing their own uh, business. And so therefore they, uh, they, they lose opportunities. So that's a, an economic lens, an economic mechanism to try to understand why uh, dominant incumbents get disrupted by upstart, uh, upstarts. Um, then later, the same question was addressed through a more sociological uh, set of causal mechanisms like structural inertia. Uh, where folks like uh, Rebecca Henderson and Dorothy Leonard Barton, um, uh, you know, took a, took a look at the the, iner the ways in which inertia could contribute to the downfall of uh, of strong incumbents, and then most recently, <clears throat> um, you have seen uh, um, basically the work of Clayton Christensen and his co-authors bring a more psychological lens to this uh, to this question. Uh, basically saying that there's a, a cognitive uh, or perceptual reason for, uh, for incumbents to be disrupted by upstarts, that they just don't see it coming in some sense, right? or their cognition, they're too focused on their existing customers uh, to be bothered with, uh, with uh, thinking about new markets. Um, so that's more of a psychological or cognitive uh, mechanism. So, so what I'm saying here is the same research question, the same phenomenon can be addressed from multiple causal mechanisms. And, uh, you know, each of those three stops on that journey for understanding, uh, you know, how, uh, how incumbents, uh, dominant incumbents get disrupted uh, was a, a useful contribution to theory. Now, another type of contribution to, to theory using, um, uh, using a causal mechanism would be to synthesize across multiple causal mechanisms, right? This, is, this tends to be what I specialize in. Uh, I'll develop formal models where I'll incorporate two or, more, uh, multiple, two or more causal mechanisms and I'll look at their interaction effect, right? So that's a, that's a con different kind of contribution to theory using the causal mechanism, is to synthesize multiple causal mechanisms in a way that explores how they interact with each other through their mediating and moderating effects. Uh, in this way, you can derive results from a combination of causal mechanisms that you perhaps could not derive from any one of them individually. Um, right, okay. Okay, so let me move on to the, the next lever, which is the uh, lever five, as we call it, the constructs and variables. Constructs and variables define the what of theory, right? The, it's the lever that defines what we are theorizing about. Um, so uh, for example, uh, you know, there are conceptual constructs whose introduction, you know, so one thing you can do to make a contribution to theory at the construct or variable level is to simply introduce a new construct or introduce a new variable, right? So some examples of, uh, of contributions to theory um, uh, through introducing a new um, construct or a new variable. Uh, one would be uh, Lippmann and Rommelt's uh, introduction of the concept of causal ambiguity. Cohen and Leventhal's introduction of the concept of absorptive capacity. Uh, David Teese's introduction of the concept of complementary assets, uh, and uh, his later contribution of the uh, of the concept of dynamic capabilities. Uh, 
uh, Jay Barney's introduction of the concept of a strategic factor market, right? So each of these is a, is a construct or a variable that was new to the literature in these, um, in these, uh, these different contributions. Uh, for example, Barney, in introducing this concept of the, um, well, let me, let me just say this. So, so another way of, um, another way of um, making a contribution to theory through the constructs or variables is to question an existing um, uh, construct or variable. A great example of this was when uh, Jay Barney uh, published an article questioning the usefulness of the whole construct of strategic groups. And in a sense, you can see that article as a necessary stepping stone uh, toward, um, uh, toward advancing resource-based view uh, as, a, as a replacement theory, because um, uh, you know, it was necessary to have uh, you know, the, the existing theory of intra-industry within industry performance differentials was, um, uh, was um, strategic groups. Uh, but if Barney was going to replace strategic groups with uh, resources as the, as the explanation for within industry performance differences, then he really needed to uh, shoot down the whole concept of strategic groups, and he had a paper doing that. So um, another possibility um, is to import a, a construct or variable from another field. Um, we've probably seen a lot of this. So, so a great example of this was um, uh, Dan Leventhal's uh, uh, bringing in the, the, the construct of the NK model from, uh, from biology. Um, okay, and then another way to contribute to theory uh, based on changing the constructs or variables is to simply change the role that a construct or variable plays in the theory, right? Because each conceptual construct or variable in the theory plays a particular role. Uh, so it may be the focal phenomenon of interest that you're trying to explain, that variable may be, or the variable may be an antecedent that explains the, the concept of, in, the, the, the focal um, uh, phenomenon of interest or it may be a consequence of the phenomenon of interest, or it may be a moderator or a mediator, right? So there's all those different possible roles, roles that a, that a concept or, uh, sorry, a construct or a variable can play in a theory. And so uh, one could make a contribution to theory by simply uh, playing around with switching uh, the, the concept, switching the variable from one role to another. So, uh, you know, one example of this from my own work is uh, my paper with uh, uh, Jens Schmidt and uh, uh, Thomas Kyle, uh, in which we, um, we say, hey, look, everybody pretty much has taken the boundaries between industries as an exogenously determined antecedent to whatever it is they're trying to explain. And instead we say, well, you know, that's, let's make that the phenomenon that we're trying to explain, the boundary between industries, right? So rather than taking it as an antecedent that explains something else, we take it as the phenomenon to be explained in that paper, right? So that's a, 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 an example of changing, making a contribution by changing the, the role of a particular variable or construct, okay? 
Um, then uh, another level, level six here, is the boundary condition. So the boundary condition is the is the lever that defines when our theory does or does not work, where, when it applies and when it doesn't apply, right? So, um, so there are some, a variety of different ways to, uh, to make contributions to the theory using, to theory using boundary conditions, right? So one of those um, is to clarify hidden assumptions. Um, so, in, well, in one way, actually, even before we get to clarifying hidden assumptions, is simply to, to uh, work out what the boundary conditions of a new theory are, right? So in some cases, especially when a, a new theory is in, being initially developed through some informal mode of theorizing, its boundary conditions may still be unclear or subject to debate. Uh, and such a theory may, you know, rely on assumptions that are not fully articulated. So in that case, exposing or clarifying the theory's assumptions can represent a useful contribution because it serves to you know uh, explain the boundary conditions of where where the theory does does or does not apply now applying formal methods tends to be very helpful in this regard because formal methods tend to you know because you have to apply the the, the rigorous discipline of logical derivation and formal informal theorizing um, you uh, it becomes clear what assumptions are and are not necessary. Uh, so as an example of this, <clears throat> um, uh, right, so, so the, the theory of uh, the conditions under which you can derive competitive advantage from causal ambiguity is, is, a, is a theory where, you know, the boundary conditions are maybe not clear, the assumptions are maybe not clear. So Mike Ryle in 2009, published a paper where he developed a formal theory of uh, the conditions under which you could derive competitive advantage from causal ambiguity uh, and, uh, and thereby define the boundary conditions around that theory. Now, another way to um, make a, uh, a contribution to theory using boundary conditions is to identify uh, internal inconsistencies, right? So, uh, or logical inconsistencies in general. Um, so if theory's own boundary conditions are logically inconsistent with each other, then, uh, then you got trouble, right? There may be no conditions under which the theory actually applies, which would be a potentially powerful critique of the theory. So Slater and Spencer in, in the year 2000, they published a paper, I think it was an SMJ, where they argued that there's a fundamental inconsistency about the assumptions a fundamental inconsistency between the assumptions that transaction cost economics theory makes about rationality, right? So on one hand, transaction cost economics uh, makes the explicit assumption uh, that, uh, that actors are uh, not rational enough to, um, uh, to do contracting perfectly, right? To have, to have complete contracts, right? So they're not rational enough for complete contracts. But on the other hand, it assumes that they are rational enough to, uh, to choose between, um, between governance structures, right? So on one hand, they're not rational enough to do complete contracting, but they are rational enough to, to, um, you know, to choose uh, between governance structures uh, perfectly, right? To, to choose optimal governance structures. And so you know, they make the argument that those, those two uh, assumptions 
are kind of fundamentally inconsistent with each other, and they use that to kind of try to take down the entire uh, logic of transaction cost theory. So that's a contribution theory. A different type of logical inconsistency uh, is not internal, but, um, but external, right? So you can find uh, logical inconsistencies with other theories. Uh, that's when you know, the assumptions of two different theories conflict with each other. Uncovering those kinds of inconsistencies between theories can be a valuable contribution by providing an indicator that the theories offer incompatible competing explanations so that empirical testing may offer an opportunity to rule out one theory or the other, or at least to assess the conditions under which one theory is more likely to apply than the other. Right? Another possible way to make a contribution here is to tighten up the boundary construct conditions in order to derive more specific implications of the theory. Um, so, you know, we can create different versions of a theory by either restricting or relaxing its boundary conditions, right? So, for example, it may be possible to derive additional predictions from a theory or predictions of greater specificity when the boundary conditions are restricted, although that greater predictive power may come at the expense of reduced generality. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, uh, Jean-Francois Henart was able to derive new predictions from the existing transaction cost economic theory by applying that theory more narrowly to the special case of equity joint ventures. Uh, conversely, uh, the generality of a theory uh, may be broadened to, uh, by applying by, uh, uh, sorry, the generality of a theory may be broadened by applying it to a wider variety of contexts by relaxing its boundary conditions. Although, you know, this may weaken its, its predictive power. That is, it may reduce the number or the specificity of predictions that can be derived from a theory. So uh, as an example of this, in their 2003 paper, uh, Gonzalo Pacheco de Almeida and uh, Peter Zemsky generalized the theory of strategic investment under uncertainty by recognizing that some resources and capabilities take time to develop, right? So, so they're basically taking an existing you know, theory of strategic investment under uncertainty and broadening it out to a wider set of uh, conditions where it could apply. Um, let me pose a, pause just for a moment and check in with Sergey and Ibrat to see uh, if we have any news about uh, uh, any guests that may be joining us. Is there... uh, certainly we have, <coughs> Richard. Um, we have... Uh, is, is our guest with us? Yes, and uh, would you like to introduce our guest? Sure, I will introduce our special guest, uh, if I can find him on the screen. Uh, uh, let me just uh, say um, I'm delighted that he's able to join us. Um, so I'm going to introduce to you uh, uh, a great mentor of mine and co-author on this essay, Jay Barney. Jay, are you there? I'm here. Okay, Jay. Welcome on board. So Thank I invited you. Jay to come for a few minutes, 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever he can spare, to uh, say a few words to the gathered masses and uh, maybe <laughs> if he's willing to maybe take a few questions. Sure. Uh, thanks, Rich. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, uh, Rich got me involved in this essay sort of well into its development. I think I had a small marginal impact on its content, but uh, it was a, it was a good, good, piece of, uh, good piece of work. I, hopefully it gives people direction. Thanks, Rich, also for organizing this event. I'm not sure who else was involved, but uh, 
but uh, this is uh, uh, this is something uh, very very important. It says my internet connection is unstable. No, it's back. Okay, I can hear you just fine. Um, so I just finished up as the uh, my term is okay. I just finished up as my term as the editor of AMR. I I, I actually am still working on a lot of papers, but formally I'm not the editor in chief any longer, and. Uh, and so uh, I've had the chance to uh, read and evaluate uh, 2,000, uh, roughly 2,000 papers um, over the last three years. Um, and uh, it, since we're a theory journal, obviously the big challenge of course is for people to, to really step up to the bar and try to make a contribution to theory. And uh, uh, most of the papers fall, actually fall well short of that goal. Um, and if I was to uh, sort of say one reason for that, the, sort of the primary reason for that, although there's lots of specific examples that we can go through and certainly the SMJ articles uh, talks a lot about how to make those contributions. But if, so if, there's, if there's a meta weakness that I've seen across these papers, it would be that, um, <coughs> is that the papers are just not clear what their research question is. What, what question are you trying to answer? Uh, I don't know if you've already talked about this, Rich, but uh, um, in, in, yeah, my, in, in my experience, uh, I have a real simple test that I use with PhD students, but I think it applies pretty generally. And that test is, uh, if it takes you more than 15 seconds to explain your research question, you do not yet understand your research question. Um, Sometimes you, uh, at early stages of dissertation are, are sort of the classic examples of that problem where, so tell me about your research. And then uh, 10 minutes later, we're still trying to understand what your research is about. Well, that's fine, because you're just trying to understand it yourself. But by the time you come to writing a paper, if, if you can't say your research question very, very precisely and very quickly, and if you can't write it in a single sentence, then, um, you're not actually ready to make a contribution yet. And so uh, I have worked with, uh, I'm working with two papers right now um, that uh, I've asked for a revise and resubmit, but the revision basically was, I think I understand your research question. I read 30 pages, 35 pages or 40 pages of your paper, and I can, I'm still guessing about your research question. But if it's this, then all these really cool things can happen. Uh, so, uh, so in both of these papers, uh, I've suggested uh, at least two research questions that are consistent with what they're talking about, uh, but they have to decide. And then, then once they decide, then they can figure out how to write the paper. Um, so um, I always hold myself to the discipline in any paper that I'm writing um, that uh, I want to have one sentence that defines my research question and it should be no longer than 24 words. <laughs> I, I, I'll grant 24 is totally arbitrary here, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a discipline that I try to keep myself focused on. So, so I'm open to answering any questions people might have, but that was in this short period of time, that was the thing I, uh, I wanted to mention uh, that has been the most obvious challenge for, these are people writing theory papers. I think it ex exactly the same thing holds for writing um, empirical papers. Uh, if you don't know the question you're answering, asking and trying to answer, then neither will your, will your readers. 
and certainly not your reviewers. So. May I kick off with the questions? I will try to summarize sure. the questions in the chat uh, that we have sure. had uh, during the last 45 minutes. So my question will be very, very open. There was one question that was specifically addressed to Jay, though, uh, in the bottom of the chat. I, one question is, what is the source of inspiration for the research questions? So how should we attack the problem of creating relevant and impactful theory in the strategic management research? Yeah, that's a, a question I'm always asked um, or often asked, um, where do you get your ideas? And uh, it, I'm actually, it's ironic because um, I think of many more papers I could write than I can write. I mean, I just don't have the time. Um, I literally come up with a paper idea almost every day. So um, like, oh, that would be cool. We could do this. And then, and, and, but you know, most of them don't get operationalized because there's not enough time in the day to do it all. Um, so with that in mind, I, I do have a couple things that I do that um, keep me moving forward with new ideas all the time, new questions to ask. One of them is, this, this, some of this is going to be pretty straightforward. Like, I think it's really important to go to conferences. Now, that's obvious and also really difficult right now. So I'm going to come. I understand that challenge, but trust me. Um, and and, uh, and to, not to go to regular paper sessions usually, because by the time a paper session, paper gets published in a paper session or presented, it's probably two years old, seriously. You go to you go to the um, to panel sessions, or you, you just find some smart people, and hang out. What are they list? What are they talking about? What are they What are they interested in? And um, and that just sort of keeps you in touch with what's going on. Um, the second thing I do is, um, in addition to my scholarly work, I do a fair amount of consulting, um, just to keep myself embedded in a bit of reality. I don't pretend I'm a manager. In fact, I think I wouldn't be very good at it. Um, um, but, uh, but, um, but I, I'm interested in, in the challenges that managers face. And, um, and so working with them, helping them understand their own situation, being a sounding board for them is a way for me to think about things too. In fact, uh, my recent paper in SMJ in 2018 on stakeholder theory came at least in part from my experience working in companies where smart managers who I had deep respect for were uh, becoming very concerned about stakeholders. And I didn't understand that. And uh, I could either conclude that these people were all crazy or I conclude that maybe they saw something that I didn't understand. And, uh, and so rather than assuming they're all crazy, I spent uh, three years trying to figure out um, what they were doing and why. Um, and then the third thing is also going to be very strange, but it, to some of you, which is that I, I try to read widely. Um, I don't I don't read just the literature. In fact, I'm really bad at reading the literature. I, I count on my doctoral students to point out articles I should read for me. Here's so much that's published. Uh, I need I need triage. So let so let someone else do that for me, uh, which leaves me time to read more broadly. Um, and, uh, and I read history, I read biographies primarily, um, 
and just uh, just to just to be exposed to different ways of thinking. I'm reading a really interesting book on, by a philosopher right now on moral revolutions and how they occur. And the first part of the book is well, why did the, the tradition of dueling in Europe go away? It's just like what a great question. I never thought about that before. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he's now, and so I, so I just try to read really, really broadly. When I was in graduate school many decades ago, um, I was at Yale and Yale, the Yale library, the main library is an incredible, incredible building space. Uh, the, the inside looks like kind of like a cathedral in the main area. And then you go and the stacks, when I was there at least, were open. And it's, I think it's maybe 12 stories, but the stories aren't full stories. They're like uh, maybe seven feet tall. So the, so the books, the racks of books go from the floor to the ceiling. And uh, so all I used to do uh, when I was feeling like I need a little bit of inspiration is I would uh, randomly choose a floor. Um, and as long as it wasn't in a foreign language, I would go into that and I would then randomly choose a row and I just pulled out a book and read it. Just read it, just skim it, see what's going on. And uh, first of all, it was a great experience because um, this is quite um, powerful for me because the way that the, the library is, is physically organized, it's like you're, sitting in the middle of a book. You're, you're, you're surrounded by books and it's a great experience. There's a smell, there's a, 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 a feeling of, of a great deep intellect there. And then, uh, you know, sometimes I pulled out books that were completely useless. And then other times uh, I read this book by a, about a French philosopher that I, who had, I didn't know anything about. And suddenly, wow, that's interesting. So, uh, so I, I try to read widely, not just not not just deeply. I know of doctoral students, it's mostly deep. I got that, you know, different stages and careers, but but I also try to read, read very broadly. I also write, I also read two or three non-academic books, well, at least non-business strategy books at the same time to sort of keep me, keep me going that way. So those are the things that work for me. I will say that in the end, the very best um, the be very best theoretical contributions are deeply autobiographical. So it's also about learning what's important to yourself. That's great. Thank you very much. If I may, another question, but at the sure. other side of the process. So you started with the uh, formulating of research question. Uh, on the other side, uh, we need to formulate a theory. So mm -hmm. there's a question in the chat. Uh, how to make that leap from the rigorous um, methodology, methodological process of extracting results to theorizing, to the, that creative process. So generalization beyond the data. So, and whether there is a rigor in theorizing as well. Well, the, the, uh, the rigor in theorizing is, um, is, a, is, a, is a matter of, is your in that. So being able to specify what are the boundary conditions ex ante in your theoretical work, um, being able to uh, know exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish, uh, all those are uh, forms of rigor. Um, um, 
if you want to do math modeling, there's another form of rigor that's associated with that. But um, a good math model will always have an intuition that is also interesting and that that might be then reflected in, a, in the mathematics, but it's not necessarily so. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable with both uh, formal modeling and verbal modeling. Rich and I have done, uh, worked together on one formal model. Um, so I, I think actually it's, it's uh, every bit as rigorous, although differently so, than uh, quantitative work. The, the problem with the, that I see right now in our field with regard to quantitative work, and this is, uh, this is very common among PhD students coming on the job market, is, they, uh, is that the, the theory discussion in their job market paper, if it exists at all, is 30 seconds. I'm just in, in this question. It's context. It's important, or so important. So just left to our to our to our imagination, and then the the, the presenter moves on to the data, and the uh, the uh, and the models. And what we end up is with it with it with is incredibly sophisticated, deeply rigorous analyses of uh, data that have little or no impact on the way we think about the world. That is little or impact on theory. And, uh, um, uh, and, and the other thing that's interesting about that is just, just from a methodological point of view, uh, these really sophisticated techniques to describe something going on in industry that I think if you talk to three managers in the, in the industry, would, they would tell you that already. So I mean, it's not, it's not even clear that this is the only way to get that kind of perspective. Uh, but simply, uh, simply describing the data and modeling it very rigorously, doing all sorts of two-stage least squares, all those things, is not connected to answering a question that is theoretically relevant. Then it's, and I, I know Rich has used this analogy too, then it's incredibly sophisticated, complicated journalism, which is fine. If you want to be a journalist, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, truly. But that's not, that's not science. Science is about um, creating and um, creating theory and testing theory. So, uh, so, I, I, so I, I don't think there's much rigor, much difference in terms of the rigor. Thank you very much. And another question, if I may, um, rather pragmatic. So mm -hmm. at, the, at the late stages of uh, PhD projects, there's a, um, an option to submit the, the thesis as, a, as an article, for example, to IM, IMR journal. Or is it better to um, collaborate with a more experienced theorist before submitting. So another way to pose the question, whether the rejection and feedback is a, is a good learning curve for, <laughs> for PhD students and graduates. Uh, you know, um, I, I would think that, that, I wish I could say that the review process is always developmental. Uh, I don't think it always is. Sometimes the reviewers or the editors don't step up and really be as developmental as they could have been. But uh, on the other hand, there are times, and certainly in my experience, there are times when the review process has been extremely important in the development of the ideas. Um, and so um, 
But there's a there's a, a there's a, a a question I think hidden behind the question, uh, which is that should uh, should uh, young people try to write theory papers, or should they be deferred to uh, people like myself who I I don't have gray hair I have light black hair, deeply light black, um, people like me, um, and. Um, I, I, I mean, obviously, this is personal preferences are extremely important here, and I would never tell you to do something that you don't want to do. But if you really want to write a theory paper, if you think you have something to say that's important, then you should write the theory paper. Um, Rich knows this story; he's heard it too many times. But um, you know, uh, I wrote um, uh, the first drafts of the the. the um, strategic factor markets paper and of the journal management paper, 91 journal management paper, uh, in, in, in one year in 1984. Um, at the time, I was 30 years old. So um, I was just a kid and I made all sorts of mistakes um, in those processes. But nevertheless, I thought I had some important questions to ask and I thought I might have a possible answer. So um, so I, I would encourage you, if you think you have a passion for theory, then why would you not exercise that passion? Great, thank you very much. Um, I think uh, we can open the opportunity to ask you questions to the audience. So guys, if you are brave enough, just unmute yourself <laughs> and ask Jay Barney a relevant question. I'm not. I'm not a particularly nasty person. Well, I'm nasty to Rich, but that's it. <laughs> I appreciate your nastiness, but the, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to overstay our welcome, Jay. What are your time constraints here? I, I was really more concerned about taking away from your. your oh, program, don't worry about Rich. that. We, we we put kind of a flexible time boundary on this. Well, I got another five minutes then, so I'll be fine. Okay. So Dr. Barney, uh, do you think um, deductive reasoning, how, how useful it is to generating theory in the strategy field based on the nature of the field? Like, do you have any examples? Of, of what kind of reasoning? Deductive reasoning. Oh, deductive reasoning. Uh, well, yeah. all, all, my, all my theorizing is deductive. So, um, uh, I mean, it, so the distinction between deductive, inductive, and abductive sort of uh, breaks down. In real life, because in real life, um, you uh, you you think it's deductive, and then you realize you've been hanging out with managers who do things that make it partly inductive. So it's sort of a mismatch. But mm -hmm. but um, there are lots of examples of deductive theorizing in strategy. Um, um, I'm I'm not opposed to inductive reasoning. Uh, we, at AMR, we don't publish inductive papers because they're empirical by definition. Um, and we don't publish empirical papers. Uh, so I, don't, I haven't had a chance to really review a lot of those uh, or, or review in depth a lot of those papers. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I do know that inductive reasoning has some challenges associated with it. That is uh, uh, generalizing beyond the, the inductive case is often very challenging. So. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying that's not not, not an important way of thinking about the world. But I would, I, for me, most of the theories that are most influential in the field of strategy are 
are quite deductive in nature. What are the core assumptions? What, uh, if you bring those assumptions together, what implications those have? You know, it takes time to figure this stuff out um, deductively. I, uh, the 2018 paper in SMJ, um, really, it just um, draws out implications that were in the 1986 factor market paper. And I wrote the paper in 1986, or 1984, and then was published in 86. And it took, you know what, 30 years for me to understand the implications of my own paper. So uh, this deductive process can take some time, but but I think deductive reasoning is very important. Yeah, because the strategy is different from physics. It's uh, like um, Dr. You know, like Rich mentioned, it's, um, you know, you don't, you don't have like one, it, it seems like, you know, it's not like one rule. You know, like in physics. So, well, physics, uh, but physics, first of all, physics is also inductive as well as deductive. Sure. The uh, background noise that was proof of the Big Bang, for which two Bell Labs uh, scientists won the Nobel Prize, was, as I understand it, kind of an accidental discovery. Mm -hmm. um, so, that's clearly an inductive uh, uh, kind of work. Um, uh, but you know, um, you know, you know, physics is one, the, the physical sciences are one model for how um, theory is done and needs to be done. But um, we, we have special challenges in the social sciences, let's just put it that way. But that doesn't mean we can't do deductive theory. Right. But then when we are doing, like, probably most of all, uh, be inductive, but when we are doing inductive, so when you do a theory paper, um, I mean, uh, like uh, a lot of times we induct from cases, right? So we see something in our daily life, we always theorize like amateurs. Mm -hmm. But in, when we are building a theory, when you induct from mm -hmm. case studies, I mean, there's always this uh, challenge about, oh, wow, well, you, you, you only have a few or, you know, but, but shouldn't that be left to the, for the people who are doing the empirical paper to, to test, to, to gather the sample size and so, that means, how do you deal with the challenge like when you're writing a theory paper, they say, oh, you only have one case or you only, you only have three cases, you know, like that. Well, I mean, that's, if you, if you develop an inductive theory paper, that's always going to be the challenge, is to uh, convince people that the theory that you've induced from your cases is, uh, has broader implications. Uh, and I will say, uh, my uh, interactions with the people at AMJ and SMJ they are really interested in publishing inductive qualitative research. Mm -hmm. They don't actually publish much of it. And the reason they don't publish much of it is it tends not to meet the standards of rigor that you just described. It's not mm -hmm. generalizable. It's descriptive, but not theoretically relevant. Okay. So are you saying the rigor is the standard is based on the boundary conditions or what the, how you specify the research question is not it's not like how many cases you are inducting from. Um, I mean, that's certainly is part of the story. Um, okay. But um, so uh, the, the, there is some interesting work on, uh, by Kathy Eisenhardt on using multiple case studies as a way to induce and then ultimately to test theory. And okay. uh, so it is possible to do that very carefully, rigorously, but um, I think we've got to the world where the sort of the N of one 
unless it's an incredibly interesting case, the, that case is probably not going to be able to get you what you need to do to get published in the top journals. But, but in daily life, don't we all theorizing from n equal one, and then then you can test, right? So can can we can we separate it? You know, when we all you know we are all doing it every day, theorizing from n equals one, and then I mean, of course, it's uh, it still needs to be tested. Yeah, there certainly is a cognitive bias that we tend to do to generalize from small samples. So right. I think I, I think other people are trying to ask some questions. So, okay. but appreciate the appreciate the conversation. When you look up on the previous uh, on the previous question, what's your perspective on theorizing without any empirical data? So, what are the chances to develop and publish a, a completely conceptual uh, paper? So, can well, you... I mean, my I've made my career on publishing that paper um, conceptual that? only. Can we do uh, that? Today? <laughs> sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll, so people will say, is it harder to get a theoretical paper published or an empirical paper published? And my experience is that they're both really hard to do. I mean, <laughs> the uh, empirical papers are hard and so are theoretical papers. So hard, difficulty is a constant. It's not a variable here. Um, uh, there are some skills you can learn to become better, more effective at writing different kinds of papers, including theoretical papers versus empirical papers. Uh, but I, yeah, I think you can do both of them. Certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, just not a, I'm just not a data guy. I never have, been. well, I was in graduate school, but I, I, I uh, repented. Um, um, and uh, I just the uh, empirical data just seems to me to sometimes just get in the way of the elegance of the theory. I know that's a controversial statement, but uh, yeah. I, I, I always I saw a joke about empirical work. It's, and it is a joke, but it is. So when you write the theory paper and get it published, you, you know it's right, right? I mean, it's, it's right. You're confident about it. So when someone has an empirical test of your theory, one of two things can happen. Their results can be consistent with your theory, but in that case, you really haven't learned anything since you knew you were already right. Or alternatively, it could be generate results that are inconsistent with your theory, in which case it was almost certainly a measurement error. So, um, you know, so I, 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 uh, I, I admire the work that's done and uh, acknowledge its importance, but uh, uh, I don't ever feel constrained by lack of data to write a, write a theory paper. May I ask a question about the different origins of theories? Because sure. when I read literature, I found that, uh, for example, uh, value capture theory, uh, mm -hmm. now they are using the game theory and uh, mm -hmm. it's from the value-based perspective. But mm -hmm. when I read the literature about probability, so how to capture value from innovation, so it's more about the knowledge-based uh, view. So even though these two views are both from the resource-based views, I still found that it's a little bit difficult for me to converge them when I want to write them together. Well, that's what makes it interesting in theory question. So I would take that observation and I would say, okay, under what conditions do these two theories come to similar conclusions, under what conditions they come to different conclusions. Then you've established the boundary conditions between the two theories. It's one of the things that Richard was just talking about. And a discussion of when those two theories generate similar or different um, predictions is in fact a theoretical contribution itself. So you just, you just did step one of writing a theory paper. And step two was to answer the question about when these two different theories operate differently. Thank you.
Um, yeah. I have a question. I, um, so this is, I learned about Jay's ABCs um, from Ross, who was my advisor, Ross Koff, on how to, oh. <laughs> on how yeah. to write the introduction to uh, papers. And I've generally tried to follow that. But I just literally read your 2018 uh, paper on the AMA on how to do that just when Rich reached out to me and told me about this workshop. So I was one, it was very helpful, very practical because it made, it, it spelled each one of those steps out really clearly. So I am wondering, when should we expect the next one on how to write theory <laughs> and propositions for the next part of the paper? Because it was, it's, it was just really an excellent template to follow. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, I don't have the next one. I have a few observations about conclusion sections, uh, discussion sections uh, that I share with people. But um, I, actually, I actually say, uh, once you, from my experiences, once I get the introduction right, in particular, once I get the research question really well formulated, then writing the rest of the paper is kind of filling in the blanks. I mean, literally, th there's a logical flow you have to create. You have to, so this paper I uh, reviewed yesterday, uh, I wrote the letter on it yesterday. I said, so I really like this paragraph because it tells you what you need to do. You need to do this, point one, you have to make that, point two, point three, point four, point five. Unfortunately, in the current version of the paper, you don't do any of those things, but at least you now know what you're supposed to do. Uh, in order to, uh, so uh, getting the introduction right, I think has a huge implication for the rest of the paper. Um, but but there is an, in, there's an intuitive part, uh, something I don't think I say in, in the versions of that essay, I have two versions out, is, um, is a way of thinking about writing theory is, is to write the paper backwards. And what I mean by that is, start with a conclusion you want to make. I want to conclude X. Conclude X is because it will contradict some other ideas or it will make, it'll make rich angry. That's a really good thing to do. I want to take, I want to, I want to end, I want to end by, with some um, controversial or provocative conclusion. And like then Michael when Porter I decide what, what Michael Porter I, is wrong. That's right. I, that was that was the title was, for a while. That was the original title of the strategic factor markets paper was why Michael Porter was wrong. Um, so I went end there, and then you work backwards. You say, okay, what what's a, the a prior step that would I need to get here, and what's the next prior step? What's the next prior step? And I want to work back the first principles, so that. The, f the first assumptions or definitions you read in the paper are completely innocuous. No one would disagree with these things. So for example, I, don't, I try to avoid coming up with new definitions. I want to use well-established definitions that are non-controversial. And then, and then my goal of the paper is to take the, the reader by the hand and walk them step by step as they go through this process of reading my paper. And the, at the first step, they're comfortable, then they're comfortable, and every step they're comfortable, and then they realize where they're headed, and before it's too late, they end up agreeing with me. So I had uh, someone on my 2018 SMJ paper came up and said, Jay, I really disagree with your conclusion, but I, I haven't found a way yet to prove you're wrong. So 
That's that's exactly the way you should. So to write in the paper backwards. Now there is a there is a problem with that model or a challenge with that model, which is how how do you, how do you realize it's an interesting conclusion? What is what is what is an interesting conclusion theoretically in the field? And uh, this is essay by by that Rich has written primarily is is helps you do that. It actually says this is what a contribution looks like, could look like. <clears throat> it could be any of these kinds of contributions. <clears throat> and so uh, that's, that's a, that to me was an extremely important addition to the introduction because I get the intuition, I work backwards, <clears throat> then I write the, the introduction that has a clear research question that I'm going to answer. It's, it's, it becomes a bit of a package. So I guess another way of saying this is that the next paper was uh, is the one in SMJ that Rich is the first author on. <laughs> I think we should just take one more question, if that's okay. Can I, can okay. I go ahead? Oh, okay. Do you want to want to go ahead? If you don't mind. Yeah, please go ahead. Um, Such generosity. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so my question is this, that um, if I'm writing a conceptual paper and um, I am not uh, undertaking a systematic literature review. It's a normal mm -hmm. literature review that I'm doing. But I end up finding a pattern in that review, pattern of, about how the research has been conducted, you know, maybe some ontological difference. Or so can that be taken ahead as a finding or maybe a contribution of my paper? Or will I get uh, review feedback as to go ahead and do a systematic review and then tell me about the pattern? Uh, otherwise, just focus on the conclusion that your concept, yeah, conceptual framework is about. What is yeah. it? Well, um, so again, this is all heretical. So I actually think systematic literature reviews are usually not that useful. Um, because most of those reviews do a really good job of telling us what exists in the literature. And what you need to do is you need to identify what's something that doesn't exist in the literature, what's missing. So a systematic literature review that does a great job, I call him he said, he said, she said this, he said this, she said that, he said this, she said that. You know, I'm serious. It, I can do that in an afternoon with a computer and a good uh, bibliographic database, right? I, I don't, that's not interesting. What's interesting is, don't even tell me about all that stuff because I know it. Tell me what's missing and why it's important. That, that, that's the only purpose of a literature review. Uh, well, that's the main purpose of literature review. Now, the way I do literature reviews is if you look at my papers, I don't have a section called literature review. I may have something called theoretical background or actually just definitions. And I will review the relevant literature by choosing definitions of terms from that literature so that people will know where I'm coming from and its purpose. But, um, but um, these, uh, we used to get these at AMR. We don't, AMR does not publish literature reviews, so, but we still get quite a few sent our way, and they're all they were all desk rejected, but, um, but they, they're, 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 they're done very systematically. I mean, here are the 62 journals I'm gonna look at, and then we'll look over these 10 year period, and here are the keywords, and yeah, but I just don't ever find that stuff very insightful. It's, it's not, it seems to be not the basis of interesting theorizing as much as 
so tell me what's missing. What's the theoretical gap and why is it important? There's lots of gaps in the literature, infinite number of gaps, literally. Um, of all the things you, all the gaps you could try to fill, why are you filling this one? And if the answer to that question is, because I did a systematic literature and everyone's talking about everything else except this one point, that's not a good reason. The, actually, it turns out there may be a really good reason no one's talked about that point right now because it's not interesting. It's not theoretically important. So, um, so yeah, I would, I'm a little cautious on, the, on I, I know for doctoral students, you got to know the literature, but there's this, yeah, two things have to happen simultaneously to be creative and theorizing. theorizing. You have to know the literature, but you have to be able to ignore the literature at the same time, because if you, you can be captured by the literature and be unable to write anything that's new or creative. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's every once in a while, I saw an earlier question where someone said, um, suppose um, somebody um, came up with a theory that said, incompetent government, government action can lead to higher firm performance. So that seems to be counterintuitive, although instantly I can see a logic for why it would make sense, right? Um, I, I would, I, I mean, I would say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, ask the counterintuitive question and see if you can build a story around that. So the literature review is important, but it's not determinative here by any such dimension. There are a bunch of other questions. Um, I wish I could, could have the time. Oh, see. My burning question, how to take organized notes from all the readings in order to facilitate thoughts for writing. Yeah, but it's, see, the theory is not derived from the readings. That's the thing. This is not about reading a lot and then saying, oh, I get it. No, it's about reading a lot and then transcending what you've read to ask a question. So, um, well, thank you, Rich, for organizing this and let me get out of your way oh. now. I, I want to say, I, I just want to say one other thing. Um, uh, at, at various times in your career, your incentives as professors will evolve and change. And certainly as young professors, um, uh, the, you're focusing on your research and your publications. I, I totally understand that. But there comes a time in your career when you have to make choices about uh, not abandoning your research efforts because those will always continue in hopes but whether you want to augment those self-narrow interests with a focus on uh, building the, our community and building the field of strategic management. And it's, it's uh, very gratifying to see someone like Rich who is, has very high level of theoretical skill and continues to exercise that skill, but has also now become committed to building the field of strategic management both through these kinds of efforts. Now he's in his role at AMR. Um, and I just want to thank you, Rich, for uh, oh. setting a correct example for that kind of behavior. So. so so kind of you, Jay. So kind of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, All right. I'm delighted that you could be with us here today. I really appreciate you dropping in and taking no questions, and, uh, maybe staying longer than you intended. I, it is, but that's okay. I'll talk okay. to you later. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you very much, Jay. Really privileged to see you. No problem, glad to do it. Thank you. Wow, that was terrific. Yes, it was.
Thank you very much, Richard, for inviting Jay. Sure. Uh, those in the chat who don't know who Jay Barney is, probably you subscribe to a wrong gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in the wrong webinar if you don't know who Jay Barney is. That's yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> Jay has an amazing 160,000 Google citations on Google Scholar. 160,000 Google Scholar citations. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fascinating and intimidating to see that uh, even Jay Barney is in the R and R process. Right? So, what are the chances for us? <laughs> yes. Well, it is. It's like he said. Every uh, difficulty is a constant, you know, in this business, not a variable. That's for sure. All right. I, thank you very much. Shall we go back? Yeah. Let me just. I have. I just. I have just one more slide. Uh, to uh, to get through here, um, and uh, so I'll try to do that quickly. So uh, the uh, let me find my notes again. Uh, okay, so the last piece of uh, and by the way, can everybody see my screen? Okay, yeah, we're good. I'm seeing nodding. That's good. Okay, so the 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 last piece of uh, Figure One is this output at the bottom. Um, so what do we actually do with a theory? What are the outputs? What can it do for us? Um, and uh, a theory can have a variety of different kinds of outputs. Uh, the most common probably is explanations or predictions, uh, but there's also prescriptions. Um, and so a theory generates an explanation when the existence of observed phenomena can be deduced from the theory's assumptions and propositions. So uh, explanations are usually expressed in the form of propositions or hypotheses. On the other hand, predictions, they kind of have the same logical structure as explanations, except that um, they involve assertions about some future date. So predictions can also be reflected in a series of uh, propositions or hypotheses. Now, finally, prescriptions point to actions that managers or others can take to have an effect on specific organizational outcomes. So what can we do in order to make a contribution at this phase of the theorizing process, the output phase? Oh, let me see. Okay. Uh, so one thing we can do is to just simply derive a new type of output. So uh, when a theory is new, usually the first order of business is to uh, to derive, um, you know, some initial outcomes from it. But uh, a theory may not yield up all of its implications at the outset. So there may be important contributions to be made by deriving additional outputs from existing theories. Um, so for, uh, you know, or, or um, especially by considering different types of outputs. So, a theory, for example, might start out as an explanation and then later get used for making predictions or prescriptions. That's kind of a, a common sort of thing. Um, so deriving a new type of output. And there's, you know, there's important distinctions about what makes uh, any one of these types of outputs good or not, right? A good prescription, I'm sorry, a good prediction, a good prediction about what will happen may not be a good explanation of why it happens, or may not be a good basis for a prescription about what should happen. 
prediction about what will happen is not a prescription of what you want to happen, right? So in short, these are all kind of different types of outputs that serve different purposes. An explanation, a prediction, and a prescription all are kind of different, different purposes that are served by them. Um, so uh, when a theory's assumptions or boundary conditions are very general, it usually yields only very general outputs. The more specific the boundary uh, conditions or assumptions become, the more specific the outputs can be. Uh, given that generality is usually considered as a virtue in theorizing, uh, the low-hanging fruit is usually picked first, leaving opportunities for researchers to make subsequent contributions by reaching up to the higher branches, in effect, by, by seeking out interesting special cases where imposing more assumptions or more restrictive boundary conditions can uh, enable the theorist to, uh, to derive uh, more specific outputs. So, for example, um, one example is I, I, we cite in the paper is uh, the 2013 article by Ramon Casadesus Bazanel and Feng Zhu, where they derive new implications from uh, game theoretic approaches to innovation and competitive dynamics by applying and altering aspects of previous models to the particular special case of sponsor-based business models, right? So uh, by looking at the special case of sponsor-based business models, they're able to derive uh, you know, more specific uh, outputs. Um, and finally, um, uh, a theory contribution can also be made by combining different theories to derive new outputs from the combination of theories that could not be derived from any one of those theories by itself. Uh, a great example of this is Ming Chen's 1996 uh, paper, I think it was an AMR paper, uh, where he derived new predictions by synthesizing theories of competitive dynamics with theories of competitive advantage. So um, that's about all I've got in terms of uh, walking through figure one and the various um, uh, levers for making a theory contribution. Basically, all we did in that theory and that figure one and in this paper as a whole is basically say, hey, what are the different parts of a theory? What are the different building blocks of a theory? And how can you make a contribution by altering one of those building blocks at a time, right? You don't need to make a big grand theory contribution by changing everything all at once. It's sufficient to take a look at one of the individual building blocks of a theory or one of the individual components of a theory and make a change there. That's a, that's a sufficient um, uh, uh, theory contribution. Um, you know, you don't have to go all the way towards creating a whole new uh, grand theory where everything is changed all at once. In fact, that probably would be counterproductive because it would be difficult for people to absorb. Um, so, Time for questions. Uh, and I'm going to rely on Sergey to field the questions and uh, uh, and give me the ones that uh, uh, he thinks are most important at first. I'll do my best. Uh, you know, um, with the number of participants, it's going to be a challenge. So, what I would recommend: we 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 had many questions in the chat, but I have a feeling that uh, some of those questions were answered in the chat as well. And some of those questions were answered uh, during the presentation itself and during this uh, short uh, Q&A uh, question with Jay Barney. So if you think that your question hasn't been answered yet, could you please repeat 
your question in the chat and uh, um, we will try to, uh, yeah, we will try to answer that, that question. Agnieszka, you generously waved your, uh, your turn. Uh, yes. Yeah. Can you kick off the Q&A session now? Yes, thanks a lot, Sergey. Uh, Richard, thanks a lot for invitation to join. It's been really, really interesting session. And I think also very, very important, not only for PhD students and junior scholars, but I think that these kind of discussions, it should be something we should discuss basically every day during a lunch break. And how do we progress with our theoretical contributions and challenges and so on? So I would like to pick up on this learning process, right? So you talk a lot about different types of uh, theoretical contributions and how we could make them, how to approach it for like many different angles. I was wondering about one of the angles that you didn't tell us yet about. And this is this uh, bridge reviewers program that AMR is offering. Could you tell us a little bit more? And then also, when do you think we should start joining? I mean, I'm not talking about joining as like a full-fledged regular reviewer, but even like a bridge program, because I, I have a feeling that we need to have some sort of a preparation. So what are your thoughts on that? Right. Okay. So, so yes. Yeah. So thank you for the question. Um, you know, this is a workshop on theory development and AMR, of course, is uh, probably the premier theory journal in the field. Uh, and so it is a place where we uh, try to develop new theorists. Uh, I recently took, uh, uh, took on the role of associate editor at, uh, at AMR, uh, and I should acknowledge uh, uh, Sherry Thatcher, the great uh, editor-in-chief for, for, uh, uh, for, gen for, for, for picking me. I appreciate uh, her, her, uh, her trusting me uh, with this role. Um, and so, you know, uh, AMR has prided itself over many years with um, its developmental um, mission. Uh, you know, we have, uh, AMR has an award for, re for reviewers uh, in terms of providing the most developmental feedback for, for, um, uh, for authors. Uh, and it is a, um, you know, it is a, a criterion. I'm asked to rate every review in terms of how developmental it is every review I, I, I receive. Um, and, uh, um, <clears throat> and every decision letter that I write is expected to be highly developmental. Uh, and for that reason, I think the last decision letter I wrote was something like four or five pages long, uh, going into the details of all the different um, uh, improvements that the authors could make to their paper. So, um, so uh, we definitely want to help develop future theorists and reviewing is definitely part of that. Uh, there's, it's an important way to kind of get tapped into what's going on in theory by, uh, you know, by, uh, by reading and commenting on early stage theoretical work that other people have done. And it's a great way of giving back to the field. Um, so uh, AMR has developed this bridge reviewer program for people who have not previously been uh, reviewers for AMR. Uh, it involves um, uh, some, uh, some training uh, and uh, some mentorship. Um, you, uh, as a bridge reviewer, uh, we try to find, uh, uh, I try to find a bridge reviewer uh, for every manuscript 
that I send out for review. Um, and uh, the editor in those, uh, in those cases has the option of including the bridge reviewers review uh, uh, in the feedback to the authors or not. Um, and uh, there's follow-up. Um, and let me see. So we have some documents about the bridge reviewer program that I do not have right at my fingertips at the moment. Uh, but maybe when the breakout rooms uh, occur and I have a little chance to uh, search through my hard disk, I can find those documents and post them here. So I thank think you. Someone thank just you. put it into the chat. But yeah, I'll put that... it into the... No, no, I'll someone put just put it. Chat. Right, when I, uh, when, when I can have a chance to look. But let me give somebody else a chance to ask them more questions first. Oh, did I, did I turn off my screen share? I hope I did. <laughs> Richard, there was, there was a question about uh, your perspective on um, using more than one building block. And there, uh, uh, there was a question from Nina Tank uh, around this. Nina, can you unmute yourself and uh, expand a little bit on your question from about different disciplines and... Nina? I cannot see Nina on the screen. Sorry. Some ah, there she is. Sorry. Um, yeah, thanks so much for um, organizing this. This has been really helpful. I just have a question, a specific one on um, the why questions regarding the mechanisms. So you give the example of um, how you there's different mechanisms from different disciplines. Do uh, if we're focusing on one audience, do we need to uh, stick to one set of mechanisms, or when we're, you know, especially in the literature view, when we're trying to explain the gap in theory, do we need to address the other disciplines view of the mechanism we're talking about? Well, are you aiming to publish it in a discipline journal or are you aiming to publish in a management journal? Management journal. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, management draws from the base, the base uh, um, social science disciplines of psychology, sociology, economics, and others, sometimes political science. Um, but uh, at least my understanding of the management field and especially the strategic management field uh, is that we're open to thinking about uh, causal mechanisms from any of these places, right? That, that the, the strategy field defines its, um, its mandate, its mission, its boundaries in terms of uh, thinking about the factors that uh, contribute to overall organizational performance with a recognition that uh, those factors can come from a variety of disciplinary sources. Um, so I think in management journals, um, you know, I, I would say it's, it's fine to blend um, uh, uh, mechanisms from dis different disciplinary sources, but with the caution that you have to be careful to make sure that you don't have uh, inconsistencies, right, between those different sources, right? So one of the one of the points that I made with regard to boundary conditions was that sometimes uh, different theories uh, can have uh, assumptions that are inconsistent with each other, right? So the assumptions, uh, for example, in an economic theory uh, usually rely on some level of rationality, right? Whereas the assumptions in uh, maybe more psychodynamic uh, theories uh, uh, really would, would regard that uh, the assumption of rationality uh, with, uh, uh, you know, as, as maybe amusing at best, as not realistic. 
Um, so if you're, if you're blending theories from different disciplines that make conflicting assumptions, that's where you have to be careful, right? But as long as, as, long as the assumptions underlying the causal mechanisms are not you know, overtly conflicting, I don't, I don't see any necessary reason why you can't, can't blend them. I hope Thank that you. helps. That helps. Thank you. Uh, there was a question from Ahmad Al-Harabi about construct and variables. Ahmad, would you like to unmute yourself and explain a little bit? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes. Yeah. My question is just about the uh, construct and variables, uh, making construct and variables relying on qualitative study. Uh, I mean, uh, how how can how can that be done? Um, I mean, uh, doing it uh, in deductive way, uh, kind of straightforward, but doing it in qualitative is is that considered as a theoretical contribution as well? Sure, why not? I mean, actually, I think um, inductive research is probably where uh, new constructs are most likely to show up, right? Uh, where you've actually, you know, you've spent some time in the real world with real managers and real organizations, uh, and you've observed, uh, you know, something that, that, uh, uh, that the theory uh, doesn't include, right? Uh, and so that can become the basis of a, of a new construct. Uh, what was it? Uh, 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 was it from Hamlet? Uh, the, uh, the quote, uh, there's more in, in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, um, you know, I think that's, that's the point, right? Uh, we've got to get out, outside of our little philosophical frame to see uh, see things that that are not included in our frame, right? So once we you know get out into the world and see those things, we can bring them back into the frame. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a, an excellent way to contribute to theory by finding constructs uh, that uh, that are not have not previously been considered, uh, um, you know, within theory and 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 base those on on observations of what's going on. In, in real world phenomena. All right, thank you so much. Great, uh, a, a small announcement. I think uh, we need to be conscious of time. So we, we will need to move to the third part of our uh, event. Okay. And we will have a break in between the second and third part. So uh, very soon, um, you, those who are taking part in the third part, you'll see an invitation to go to uh, a breakout room. Please uh, ignore that invitation for a while. And uh, later on, uh, I, I will say you went to press that button. So now, uh, so if we, if, sorry, Sergey, if we don't have time to, for more questions, let me just invite everybody. If you, um, uh, if you want to follow up with me uh, offline afterwards about questions that we we did not have time to answer, please feel free to do so uh, on the um, on the handout that I distributed, and it has my. Uh, my LinkedIn and my uh, my email and all that. So feel free to contact me directly offline with any uh, questions that we didn't have a chance to answer. Excellent. Thank you very much, Richard. That's really generous. Uh, we know how busy you are and uh, answering uh, each and every question. You know, it's uh, you know it's out of the uh, out of this world. Uh, I think we have. 
one more interesting question. So uh, out of those building blocks that you explained, uh, which one would you say is easiest, you know, the pragmatic, you know, if you, and which one would you say is the most interesting, all right? So if Boy. you choose wow. only one. Hmm. Gee, that's a, that's a good one. Um, well, what's easiest for me is not necessarily easiest for other people, right? So I've got kind of a different skill set. I'm more of a puzzle solver kind of person. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's part of why I do formal theory. Um, so for me, changing the mode of theorizing from, from informal to formal or, um, or uh, combining multiple causal mechanisms in a formal model um, or deriving additional um, uh, outputs by, by, uh, by combining theories, those things are, are kind of, those, those are the easier things for me just because of my skill set. But, but what will be easier for you probably is different. It probably will depend upon your skill sets, right? So you might find it easier just to come up with new research questions or uh, to, uh, to translate uh, theoretical insights from one level of analysis to another or something like that. So I can't really speak to what's gonna be easy for each individual person. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a skill-based thing. Uh, what's mo mo most important it was the second part of the question. What kind of uh, contributions are most important? Gee, I don't know about that either. I would say, you know, because what do we mean by important? Important could be um, in terms of uh, generating new insights or in terms of generating new practice for managers, right? New things that managers actually do differently or could be important in terms of generating lots of new empirical research, right? So, so there's different types of importance. Um, so I'm not really sure I can answer that. What I would say is the, the kind of contribution that's most central is, is a causal mechanism lever, right? If you're doing something with the, with the underlying causal mechanism, you know, that's driving the whole theory, then that's very central. Now, whether whether it being central makes it important or not, whether there's a correlation between centrality of the contribution and the importance of the contribution, I don't know. Right? But that's, that, that's how I would think about it. That's great, thank you very much. That, that was wonderful, a great presentation and uh, just exciting Q&A session. Uh, shall we say thank you to Richard for this insightful uh, webinar and those who don't stay with us on the third part can, uh, can drop off and those who are with us on the third part, we will have a comfort break and resume. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, for spending, uh, thank you for spending a couple hours of your day with, with us. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I know that some of you are going to be staying around for the, the roundtable breakout room workshop part of this uh, session to, uh, to get some feedback and give some feedback on uh, your little two-page introduction uh, contribution documents. Uh, maybe not so little. Maybe they, maybe they are, uh, uh, maybe they're big. I don't know. Uh, uh, but uh, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, interacting with uh, folks um, who are staying. And I appreciate those who are leaving for, for joining us for this part of your day. And I hope you got some benefit from it. It's been an honor and a privilege to work with you this morning. And uh, I just want to invite everybody here uh, to stay in touch. Uh, please feel free to contact me anytime. 
the only thing I want to do is to say thank you very much, Richard, Richard for this fantastic session. It was quite intense uh, and uh, it was really insightful and uh, I hope it's, it's going to be really useful for the projects that uh, a majority of our delegates uh, still um, need, to, need to submit. Thank you very much. Now I hope we are um, in a better understanding how exactly we need to contribute to, to theory in, in our projects. Great. Can you join me in saying thank you to, to Richard? Thank you very much, oh, Richard. Thank you so much, thank Richard. You so much. Yeah, it's really great service for the community. Uh, you're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. I appreciate uh, you guys showing up. And uh, it's a, again, it's an honor and a privilege. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great privilege. And uh, uh, thank you very much for, for, sure. for doing this session and inviting Jay you know, to, to this session. Sure. Let me just ask around the people who are still in the room. What, what did you get out of this experience? Uh, so, Rich, I, I think this is, uh, you really articulated so well. Um, it's like what you're saying, you know, how to theorize has been one of the most hazy issues. And it was not talked about in the doctoral program. Because I actually, I've been, I'm actually an associate professor. I graduated a long time ago. And still sometimes I get confused. And people don't talk about it. It's, uh, you know, like you said, it's like almost like implicit, um, like a black box. But it is really, uh, it is really critical. So I feel like your article really sort of like, kind of is like um, shines a light, you know, how, how can we tackle these questions? And it's not just for theory papers, right? All the empirical papers, they need to have this theory section, right? right. So it's, uh, <clears throat> and even the empirical papers, you have to contribute to theory, you know, you can just uh, test something. So I think it's, uh, absolutely useful it's like it's just one of the rare moments you know like i feel like wow somebody actually come out here and talk about this and in such a clear way you know it's um you know it's absolutely so useful so sure sure what, what else did you guys get out of it <laughs> well there there are two important things that i actually got it from uh, jay barney and you firstly as you said i mean uh, theorizing and theory building is also very tacit you know it's it's as uh, zhang said i mean it's very hazy but your structure the way you've given the presentation it makes it seem you know very simplistic in in a in a way i mean we can actually you know kind of not eschew theorizing and uh, you know kind of really practice it and the second thing, what, what Jay Barney, um, that was a big surprise, actually. It was like a blockbuster moment, you know. Thank you so very much. I feel so blessed, you know, to even listen to him. I mean, it was like, like a big moment for me. So the, the, in India, I mean, we have a big fascination for literature review, you know. Everybody is like, you know, doing a lot of literature review. But what Jay Barney says, I mean, it's very enlightening. I mean, it's not about what literature says, but it's what you gather from it. Identify the gaps and tackle it that way. So that was pretty interesting. So thank you very much. I really feel very blessed, you know, to have such a groundbreaking session today. I'm delighted that you got some value from it. That's great. Seriously. I mean, it was really brilliant. Thank you so much, Sergi, as well. Sure, sure. Jenny, how are you doing? Did you get something from this? Hello. I was actually staying to um, say hello to you. and like. Oh, sure, sure. 
such well, a great question. Well, it's good to see you again. But like, I just wanted to say, like, um, I really definitely agree to like the points that Professor Zhang also mentioned in that it's not only about theory papers that we are going to be asking these questions um, and trying to figure out what we need to be writing or including in our papers. Um, I, I think like even for empirical papers, like not only the theory part, but just overall in general, these are the questions that we're we are supposed to be asking ourselves. So what is your contribution? What are you trying to test? What are you trying to study? So what, why is it different from the existing literatures? So it's kind of like, like not only just the structure itself that, um, like that the paper gives, but it's actually the core questions that we need to continuously return to while we're doing our research. And we might sometimes float away, but still we need to return back to these fundamental questions and at least have these checklists um, figured out before, let's say we submit or like we kind of talk about it with other people. Um, so I think I really, really agree with those uh, points in general. And also, really, it was a big surprise for me too. Um, like uh, Jay Marty, like hopping in, um, I thought I thought it was a really great experience, um, especially for like the PhD students who typically don't have that opportunity to um, meet with like really really senior faculty members. So I really wanted to thank you again. Oh, um, sure, for sure. This workshop and also for organizing and like hosting this workshop as yeah, well. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, I guess like the best thing that we can do is really just work, work, <laughs> work hard and try to develop our research uh, as much as we can. Um, yeah. I guess that's one way that we can kind of pay back to the academia world. It's, well, pay it forward. Don't pay it back. See, I know you'll never have gray hair like I do, but you'll, you'll be my age someday and then you'll, you'll pay it forward to the, to the, uh, young, uh, smart, uh, energetic uh, doctoral students uh, at Rice or elsewhere, who uh, uh, who come to you for your sage advice, and and that that would be payment back enough for me. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Um, I'll hop in. Like I'll see everyone. Else. Okay, take yeah. care. Thank you. All of the words shut down. Take it easy on yourself